I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, with an episode featuring a company proposing a new concept in architecturally significant real estate. While this is not a new idea, theirs is a new approach, for sure. I sat down with Jack Byron, uh, founder and CEO, and Charlie Byron, founder and marketing director. We discuss the business, and we also talk about the challenges that face the design and architecture communities here in Southern California as it relates to the availability of architecturally significant properties, the availability of design properties, their value, scarcity, and the value of the dirt underneath them. When the dirt is worth more than the structure, treasures are going to be lost. And they are uh, at an alarming rate here in SoCal. This is an interesting idea when you consider that the company was not created to drive pure real estate deals. It was created to specialize in design differentiation, significance, and specialty. Jack and Charlie know of what they speak. Jack has worked for Sir Norman Foster, Philippe Stark, Dame Zaha Hadid, while Charlie worked in marketing shops for brands like BMW, Google, Hulu, uh, Procter & Gamble. So understanding that real estate is equal parts passion, psychology, commodity, and marketing, these two understand the basis for founding a company like this. In this conversation, you will hear each concept explained as it relates to this endeavor. They call it superstructure. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, our sponsor, known in Southern California for providing amazing service and world-class products like those from Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove. Here you have a company that is laser-focused on helping homeowners be their very best in the kitchen with refrigeration that provides proper food preservation, ovens and ranges that provide precision in food preparation, and Cove dishwashers that can handle any mess. Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove appliances are stunning to look at, in too many sizes and styles to list here, but it's also what's on the inside. The tech inside these appliances has been tested, crafted, and worked to razor-sharp precision, allowing for exactly what your clients want, precise and predictable results in the kitchen. That's what you get with Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove. And you will find the full line of each at all three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations. You can also see the newly designed living kitchen in the Santa Monica and Pasadena showrooms. Isn't it fun, too, how you can go from just talking about clothing and getting dressed in the morning and kids to just jumping right into it and talking about architecture and design. Absolutely. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> Isn't that the best? Yes. Okay. And it's funny too, because when we sat down, I, I said, okay, so how long have y'all been here? And it's, well, it's kind of a complicated story. It's like, okay, save it. Let me, yes. let me hit record first. So now I hit record and you can tell me the story. Yes, Absolutely. of course. Yeah. Well, Charlie, you might like to. Well, uh, yes, the reason it's a bit complicated is because Jack and I tend to move around quite a lot. Wait, you do? Because seriously, I was going to say, you guys are obviously from, born and raised in Southern California. I can, exactly. te- I, I can you, tell by you, the accent. You, you detected the accent. Yeah. yeah. In the valley. Yeah. Okay, maybe not. Maybe not. No, I can't even do a valley accent, but I'd like to be able to. <laughs> So, yeah, we moved to L.A. originally nine years ago uh, after having met about 10 years before that and promising each other we would move to California within about a year of meeting. And then life sort of got in the way. And uh, when we uh, got pregnant, or I got pregnant, even you weren't pregnant, uh, with our first son, we realized if we didn't do it then, we were never going to do it. So... 
that was um, about nine years ago. And uh, we moved to L.A. We lived here for five years. Mm -hmm. We moved up to San Francisco, lived there for two years, and then came back to L.A. for a year. I got pregnant again. Um, Well, of course course you came back to L.A. after living in San Francisco. Of course you did. Right. Yes, of course. Um, what What was the lure of California? Coming from, U- from the UK? I think there were, there were two things going on. Firstly, Charlie had known it. Uh, she went to University of Santa Cruz. Uh, I had known Los Angeles all my life because my father was from here. Um, and I think it's such a, uh, Los, Los Angeles particularly is such a different city to London, to any European city really. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a, it's, its own thing. And in that sense, it was, it's, it's tremendously alluring, I think. Uh, in architectural terms, I think there's such a, uh, a wide variety of residential architecture here uh, that's not immediately apparent when you first visit it here, because, when you first visit Los Angeles, because it is residential. It's not huge public architecture in the main. Um, and so it's, it's a bit of a discovery process. Um, whereas, you know, a city like London, it's all on show. It's quite obvious. Uh, and the residential architecture, although quite good in the main, Victorian, Georgian, etc., is largely quite repetitive. Whereas in Los Angeles, there are numerous different styles, and I don't think anyone could, could accuse it of being particularly repetitive in architectural terms, uh, at least in, re- in residential. So um, for us, I, can, I think part of the magic of it was that it was just such a, a vastly different place um, from London and from, from a typical European city. It's funny because you talk about LA. I talk about this because I've been doing the podcast for as long as I have. I, I, I talk about this all the time, and I absolutely, I absolutely love talking about it because it is so unique. Yes. Um, but in London, y- you have a very, very strong interior design and decorator community. It's very strong. What do you, what do you equate that to? Why, why is it so strong? And, and I guess backing up a second, one would say because the architectural styles are very much, they are very much the same and mm. they have been for, for such a long time. Mm. Do you feel like maybe on the architecture side, there's, a, there's an inability to innovate and recreate because there's, a, there's, a, there's an acceptable style, if you will. And so you do it on the inside. But I'm curious as your take. I have, I I suppose, a a couple of opinions about that. Firstly, I think London um, is really a sort of crossroads for European culture. Uh, There's so many people who work in architectural or interior design who are not British, who are not from the UK, but but are from elsewhere in the EU or elsewhere in the world. Uh, And certainly for architecture and interior design, over the last 20 years, it's become a very international um, creative space in that sense. And also, uh, I suppose the other point is that in London, it's quite difficult to build a new house. There isn't much space. Land is very expensive. I know people, you know, in Los Angeles, land's become vastly more expensive in the last 10 years, but it's still cheap compared to London. So to be able to build your own project is really very difficult. And people, uh, I'm not joking, people spend their entire careers trying to find a place where they can build new. So therefore the opportunity is really to do interior design and to reimagine uh, spaces that are quite often historic. Well, I find it interesting too when, when, we, when we talk about London in particular, you know, Los Angeles, big, wide open space. And it's interesting because we have earthquakes yes. and earthquakes knock buildings down. In London, 
we had World War II. Yes. And World War II, it, it's really interesting if you think about it, but World War II created a, a large number of infill projects or opportunities for infill projects, Yes. right? And so you had a lot of construction taking place at the time, 1945 to 1955, mm-hmm. really filling in and rebuilding. So now, if, if you're looking at an architectural lifespan of 100 years, 150 years on a, on a dwelling, you're right. There's, no, there's really no opportunity unless you want to go in and, and rehab, refurbish, refurbish, tear down, start again. But I imagine that doesn't happen much. So I find that, I find that interesting. It, it doesn't happen an awful lot. It happens to some degree. Uh, one of the things uh, that makes that difficult uh, is that uh, building is quite tightly regulated. There's a... There's a uh, a, a planning system in the UK that is uh, has been in existence uh, for quite a long time now, uh, and the regulations are quite strict about what one can and cannot do, uh, and that leads to some quite interesting solutions. In the last ten years, there's been quite a phenomenon uh, in very expensive parts of West London of sort of extreme basement digs, uh, going two or three levels below ground and adding significant space. Uh, that way, adding art galleries, adding swimming pools, gyms to buildings that were Georgian or Victorian or, or, or more recent um, that have no way above ground, really, of, of, of being, uh, being expanded and, and, and redesigned. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's led to some creative solutions for creating extra space. Um, but it's also, I think, there's more of a tradition in Europe of protecting historic architecture, of having more uh, having more heavily codified planning systems uh, that really limit what architects and developers and builders can do and in in some way while you're protecting the architecture you're also completely making it impossible to innovate and experiment absolutely yeah it's well, it's in Previously, I worked for Zaha Hadid Architects, and um, one of Zaha's frustrations, and she was not alone in this, a lot of um, architects who work in London, I think, feel the same frustration. David Chipfield is another one that springs to mind. The opportunities to do projects in London or the UK compared to other European countries or other countries around the world are relatively slim. Uh, And so... While a lot of sort of world-renowned architects practice in London, they maybe don't really build in London or the UK that frequently. Uh, Chipperfield obviously builds quite a lot in Germany. His German office is probably bigger than his London office now. Zaha uh, waited for a, a very long time for her first UK commission. Yeah, and it's 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 almost like you know building there is pay, paying the bills, but building elsewhere is feeding the soul. Absolutely, and the bills are quite large as well. <laughs> so, yeah, you need to do a lot of soul feeding, I think, to uh, make the sums work. So that being said, so now you find Southern California, which is an, an absolute o- oasis. And I would, I make light of coming back from San Francisco because I view San Francisco very much as a New York or London. Um, very kind of they have a they have a way they have a style they have they have a vision of the way things should be as opposed to southern california where it's like hey you want to try that go ahead right you know let's see what happens so you you come back here what is the what is the project now what is the goal now this project seems seems pretty complicated and complex um so i'm really excited to hear how how you view it why you started it and what the what the goal is 
Well, I, so the, the idea behind superstructure is, is really that we have a, a, a belief, a commitment to, to the notion that architecture has the power to, to, to improve human life, which sounds very grand. And various philosophers and architects have alluded to this concept uh, pretty much for the history of architecture, throughout the history of architecture. Um, one quote that we particularly like is by uh, John Ruskin, um, and it, which is along the lines of the uh, a building must shelter us, but it must also speak to us. Um, we, through, through our careers, have felt that in the space of uh, real estate brokerage, um, there is an opportunity to really focus on design-led property, by which I mean not any uh, architectural, well-known architectural designers who've designed buildings that we're all aware of, Neutra and Schindler, but also interior designers uh, throughout all different styles of architecture. Uh, and to do that specifically in Los Angeles because there is such a rich history and rich variety of residential architecture. Um, and Superstructure is a, a real estate brokerage which aims to uh, focus on that kind of architecture that will uh, only focus on architecture that has integrity. Um, it could be, as I've just said, a range of different styles. But we feel that uh, the kind of people who would like to live in that architecture, whether they're creative people or just uh, are fascinated by architecture, there's no one really speaking to them specifically in that space currently. Um, we are different from uh, typical brokerages because we are design professionals. We have spent a fairly long time, each of us, uh, working in architectural design. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's uh, a good moment to uh, start an agency that just is about design um, f and bringing um, design to uh, creative people. It's also a, a, an incredibly ambitious endeavor. <laughs> I mean, you're you're not you're not coming into a space without without serious competition um, um, on the high end, on the low end, and everywhere in between. Absolutely, real estate in in Southern California is, is not a is not an easy. I don't, I don't think it's an easy game anywhere. <laughs> but you know, like I, I spent time living in Texas. In Texas, it's relatively easy. Yeah. You've got a lot of land. You've got a lot of brick houses that all look the same. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. But there's, you know, the marketplace. If you don't like what you got and you want to go further out, then you can go further out. So it's, it's, not, it's not the same. Here, it's very, very competitive. That has to be at least a, a, little, a little daunting. I mean, I, the angle's really interesting. So, but it's also incredibly daunting. How do you, how do you navigate the competition and outsiders coming in, not, not that outsiders have, have ever been anything less than welcome. Southern California is the home of people coming to reinvent themselves and start something new and experiment. It, it's an incredibly welcoming community. How do you approach that, though? What is, the, what is the USP? What is the unique sales proposition? What is the differentiator? And then how do you, how do you spread the word? Do you want me to do um, well, I think it's interesting you say that in terms of the competition because, um, you know, previously Jack and I were uh, running a property development company based in Los Angeles where we were refurbing single family homes and we 
didn't really meet um, or, or come across uh, any realtors that the entire uh, agency um, had that design sensibility or was focused on the kind of architectural integrity of the homes or even the kind of stories behind the homes. It was very much seen as a commodity. It was very much a kind of volume game. And I think that's really, you know, Jack and I aren't imagining that we're going to be doing hundreds of transactions. You know, we're imagining we're going to be doing a handful of transactions, but they're going to be houses that are amazing and they're going to be houses at many different price points that really speak to the people who are buying them and really make a difference in kind of how their life is as a result of kind of purchasing or selling a home. Yeah, and I, I think I'd add to, to that, uh, which is uh, really that what our USP is, is that we are a company that's focused on the kind of people who want to live in the unique spaces, uh, people for whom space makes a big difference to their state of mind. And I think for a lot of creative people, that's, that will resonate with them, that when they are in a well-designed and well-conceived space, it, it really affects their mood and alters the way they're able to work. And conversely, when they're in a poorly designed space, it can, uh, it, that can also have consequences. And what's different to us about, say, every other brokerage in town is that uh, because we're architects and designers, we understand those spaces. We understand the needs of the kind of people who want to live in them. Um, we are, and as Charlie rightly says, we're less interested in volume. This is always going to be a niche thing, and we fully understand that. But we feel there is no one who, const who, who currently serves that niche. There are, of course, people who specialize in mid-century or uh, predominantly mid-century, really. But there isn't really anybody who seems to run the full gamut of architecture. And by that, I mean someone who understands the, spe the special qualities of the glass box and hills, but also understands uh, that people might want to live in a warehouse downtown that's been created, that someone has creatively redone the interior. So it's an architecture and design first focus. So with that comes the challenge of identification. I, w I would venture to guess that aside from the marketing side of it and getting the name out there, identification of the of the properties first and foremost and then so you identify them and you catalog them that has to be a huge undertaking it, it is a huge undertaking what are you up to now eight thousand we, we are we're up to six thousand okay but we, we've got quite a way to go uh, and we approach that undertaking uh, really as a piece of academic research uh, we have two uh, very hard-working former USC grads working for us right now uh, and uh, the, the project has really been to uh, look through different epochs, periods of architecture and do, uh, for the large part, original research. People, uh, various institutions have catalogued uh, mid-century uh, buildings in Los Angeles before, but so far as we know, no one's attempted to uh, catalog every architecturally interesting um, building in Los Angeles. Okay, so hold it. I'm going to stop you right there sure. Be because I, this is really interesting. This is, this is kind of like where the rubber meets the road for me. Okay, <laughs> so every year, I go out, I haven't talked to him this year yet, but I'm going to at some point, uh, a guy named Ken Bernstein, who is with the um, city of Los Angeles. And he is the manager of the historic property office for the city of Los Angeles. And they catalog all of the HPOZs, all of the historic preservation zones. And they've got thousands and thousands, I wanna say they have like 32,000 properties mm -hmm. um, 
cataloged and on the site under these HPOZs, uh, H, these uh, historic preservation zones. So what's interesting too is it could be what's determined historic, but what's historic isn't always distinctive or important, right? Absolutely. Or currently relevant. Could be, might be, and what's new, newer, not historic, might be more relevant. But who's the arbiter of what is historically or architecturally special? Well, in this case, we have to be. Uh, and it's not just uh, Charlie and myself, but it's also uh, Julia and Eleanor who are running the project. Uh, they are both qualified architecturally. Uh, and we have a meeting every week where we decide is, does this meet our standards? Does it have some sort of design integrity? And we try, we, you know, we're, we're not design snobs in the sense that uh, it could be a really good example of a dingbat building that is just... Okay, wait, I'm stopping you again. Yes. There is no value in the dingbats. I'm <laughs> sorry. But there, <laughs> anything that if the earthquake is big enough will make it fall upon itself... I'm sorry, but I, I get what you're saying. Yes. I totally get what but you're saying. But is a bad example. It might, it may be, maybe. Yeah, it could be a, a sort of uh, a style of architecture that's somewhat unloved, but, uh, but this is a, a, a building that is particularly well designed or a good example of its type. So, uh, but you're, you're curators. We are in that so, sense. So this is, I think, a, a really important distinction. So who's it important to? It's important to you. Yes. So what you're also looking for is you also are seeking the buy-in. I guess that's what I'm wondering. You, all, you, you also have to get the buy-in from the people who are buying right. that these are relevant and these are special and these are interesting. The standards that you're using is, is your own experience. Yes. Um, and I think that's probably really when it comes down to a USP that's what makes it so special I think the, I think you're right there is this curatorial uh, element to it um, there is also uh, a, together with that there's an idea to create provenance for uh, specific buildings that we will sell feature um, and I think that kind of story is what is sort of lacking uh, in this space currently um, our feeling is uh, that people who live in interesting spaces in architecture are quite often interested in how those spaces came to be. Um, and the fact that, that that's sort of a race from, from the way things are currently handled seems a bit of a shame to us. Uh, and it doesn't, by that I don't necessarily mean it's the story of how an architect came to build a building. It could be as simple as how an interior designer came to design the space in which they currently inhabit. And I think that, that sort of human element of the story, if you like, is tremendously important to design. Uh, I want to know about it, I, and, I, and we believe that uh, the kind of people who would be interested in superstructure would be interested to hear about it. And together with that uh, ambition is, is really uh, an editorial approach to what we're going to do as well, in the sense that our website is really going to be a sort of collection of articles uh, on architecture and design, um, obviously listings and things we have for sale as well, uh, but also editorial pieces on architects, on buildings, uh, and other areas of design in Los Angeles. 
I was going to say also, I think on the curation piece, you're, you're really spot on around that because I spent the last two years working for an AI tech company based in Silicon Valley. And a couple of people had asked me, you know, Jack and you are launching this real estate company. Why aren't you using AI? Why aren't you using algorithms? You understand that. You, want, you, know, you know the people who would be able to kind of figure that out. But I think the human curation is incredibly important because the point is we're, we're sort of putting, if you like, or Jack particularly is putting a filter or a lens so it's it's not just any building built in 1924 is relevant it's buildings that were built then and still look great or have you know been added to in a way that's sympathetic and so there's a lot of very uh, kind of human touches that uh, go through this process to decide which of them we would see as being kind of relevant or not I also think it's it's relevant that when you talk about using AI and you, you talk about using algorithms, the only way an algorithm is going to work is if the information is first, either the metadata or any kind of qualifying data is, is input there in the first place. Southern California in particular, I would say we are probably the greatest violators of architectural provenance in the world intentionally is not as not as a result of wars or natural disasters but of uh, by our own volition by our own hand taking down amazing architecture and i would i i would put out there first and foremost that many of the people who do it have no idea what it is that they're looking at yeah i think you're precisely right about it and i think that's the that's the crux of the problem uh, it's an education problem really if people understood uh, Let's take an example. Someone was going to tear down a Neutra because the kitchen was too small in the master bedroom. It didn't have a master bedroom. You know, perhaps if, if, uh, if someone took the trouble to explain what, you know, what the design genesis of that building is, why it's important, uh, what the architect's thoughts were, how it captures natural light, you know, the, the, uh, the materials that were used, how it relates to its landscape, uh, they would see the value and the utility in it. And, and of course, it's a slightly different style of life. It's not, it's, you know, you're, you're not living in the vast master bedroom and you don't have a huge kitchen. Uh, but does, does one necessarily need those things? And uh, one of the aims of superstructure, um, and I know there are other people who are diligently working in this space too to preserve important architecture in Los Angeles, is by creating provenance around things that we list, we explain to people why they are important, how they came to be. Uh, and we hope that through that process, um, just like a work of fine art, there is an explanation behind everything and people might be interested in finding out what that is. And it will create a value in that object to them. Well, and, and let's look at the economics for a second. By creating the provenance, you're, if you get a structure that is not suitable for one certain family and one agent is talking about well, you know what, you can knock it down and get, get the dirt value, you know, pay the dirt value for this lot and then build something else yeah. as, as opposed to actually identifying, because that's the problem is many of these architectural gems, they get knocked down before anyone who actually would, find, would have the love for it finds out that they're even available. Absolutely. You know, there's an organization here, Save Iconic Architecture, mm -hmm. uh, Ron and Jamie. Yes. And th they, they are out there actively pursuing. They're trying. You know, they're, they're doing a great job. They're designers first and foremost, so they're busy. But at the same time, they're doing a great job trying to identify and save these structures. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to them at Modernism Week, and I asked them, too, 
what makes it worth saving? There was a um, there was a Googie on Santa Ma- on Sunset. I think maybe it's just going down now. It was a Chase Bank, um, and they're knocking it down. They're leveling it to to build multiple stories, mixed use. What what makes it worth saving? Is is it because as curators, you see the value as a piece of art, mm-hmm. or is it because now you're identifying a value because of the architect that worked on it or the type of style it is that it's not available anymore? Or is, is the value actively figuring out who you can find to pay true value? Well, I hate to say it's all those things, but I do think it's all those things. I think once you create provenance around something, almost as a matter of course, you make it more valuable. Uh, whether it's a, an artwork or a classic car or a building, once people, once people recognize the name, understand the design intent, and that's what art dealers do. They, they, they create a, a sort of aura around something, and of course it affects its value. Do you, do you view that as, as part of the service that you provide, is, is possibly bringing somebody a, a project or a home or, or a piece of property that they would fall in love with, but maybe the, the seller doesn't actually know what it is that they have, and you're, you're getting them something at, at an incredible value for what they put more individual value in. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've had our own experiences of buying things ourselves uh, that were unloved, and, and perhaps uh, the, the sellers and the agent didn't realize, had no appreciation for what it was. It was just uh, another transaction. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely part of our mission is to connect the kind of people who have our sort of interest and passion uh, for architecture and unique space uh, with projects that need to be resuscitated, that need a, a, new, uh, a, a, a new breath of life to them. Um, and I just want to go back to what you were saying about provenance. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a sort of two pronged approach really because not only do you increase the value of something by explaining it and and, and by giving a sort of historical uh, explanation about how it came to be um, but it's also I'm going to forget my train of thought now. I was going to say our friend Dan was telling us a story he's actually an architect who uh, lives in Hermosa Beach but a friend of his bought uh, a, what is to us a very architecturally interesting uh, house in Venice and he was looking at the property considering buying it he doesn't, un- he doesn't know anything about architecture uh, he actually works as a writer on The Simpsons so he has like no like you know burning interest in architecture or design but he was like you know the, I, I guess the realtor probably said to him like oh it's, it's done by you know well known architect whatever you know went over his head but he was like I guess I'll ask Dan about this and see you know what he thinks told Dan, uh, Dan was kind of, you know, jumping up and down like, oh my God, this would be amazing, you know, to, and bought him the coffee table book. And so when they met for coffee to talk about it, he took him, you know, the Tashin book and was like, you know, here's his coffee table book. And, you know, he was turned around. He was like, and that's, it's like that quick, do you know? And now I think he's lived there for maybe over five years and loves it and has come to love all of the kind of, int- you know, uh, 
like eccentricities of the building and all yeah. of these things. So it, it, it doesn't have to be something where, you know, you have someone explain kind of, you know, a I long see. history or a long yeah. whatever. It can literally be someone saying to you, you know, there's this guy is so important. There's a coffee table book about him that people have in their living rooms. And then someone immediately sees the value in that home. And, and you reminded me of what I was trying to say and blathering on about previously, <laughs> was that, uh, that provenance isn't just about a financial value. It's also about a value as an artistic object. And I think that's that that's something that uh, people are, are are starting to understand very much in in Los Angeles, uh, and because Los Angeles is a relatively recent place, of course, compared to somewhere like London or Paris, that you know uh, uh, people have 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 realised at earlier stages in those cities that it's worth saving historic architecture because they're 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 cultural artifacts, they're a legacy, they're a historical legacy for everyone to enjoy. Um, and if the short-term way of preserving them is increasing their value, so uh, so the development uh, mathematics isn't quite so attractive to pull them down, then that may be one way of of, uh, of solving the problem, um, short of regulation. And I do think greater regulation is needed in Los Angeles. Um, you know, San Francisco is a good example. They do have a, a more strict planning code because they have such a a legacy of Victorian architecture, and quite rightly, they don't want to lose it. Um, and I think that's something that I know LA is a number of different administrative cities, so it's more of a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. It's not insurmountable, no, but I, I think that um, what most, and I, I, I don't say outsiders in a derogatory sense, but outsiders as, as in those either not originally from here or haven't been here long enough to really notice, many people will come here and think of LA as a city. You have LA, you have Orange County, you have the Inland Empire, you have Ventura, and that's a mistake. Um, LA is not a city. We are a conglomerate of 40 some odd boroughs, and every borough has a different vibe and a different feel and a different expectation. You know, some caught on a little earlier than others did. You were talking about Neutra. Um, and, and those properties. I had a chance a couple of years ago to go tour the Neutra VDL house uh, with Sarah Lordson, who is, who's the, call her the caretaker. She's also the head of um, Cal Poly's architecture school. And so she lives there with her husband in a back house. And the, the two of them actually fix stuff as it breaks. They fix it. But they live there and they tour it. And if you took somebody on that lot, say the house was hypothetically for sale mm-hmm. and you've got a view of the reservoir and you know you look up their silver top and you're in this beautiful area right across the street from the reservoir on the walking area on the plot of land where that home is someone would come in you've got the back house and the front house they'd say you know what you can tear this down and build a you know 10,000 square foot palace and of course you could and you would have something that doesn't have this microscopic kitchen with an elevator in it for whatever reason. And Dione's room is so small with the whole nautical theme that, you know, little tricks are employed. We're, we're walking in at the roof level and then raising the roof level up and having the water outside so it looks like it looks like it continues. And the bed, because it's so small, the bed is on a pivot, so you actually have to pull it away when you want to make it. And it's built in. Someone might not 
put value. I guess we're, I'm going in a circle here, but they wouldn't put value in that unless they knew who it was and how, how architecturally significant and relevant that particular work is because of the man that created it. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I guess the, the parallel for me is if you go into a gallery space and you see a piece of artwork, but you don't bother to read the paragraph or two beforehand explaining how it came to be and, and what it means and what the resonance is for the artist then you may look at it and think, well, I could do better than that. Or, you know, you, you don't quite understand the backstory clearly. Uh, and I think you can, uh, you can, it's a direct parallel with a piece of architecture like that. It is a piece of art. And if, uh, if someone is made aware of how it came to be, of the features that you just explained uh, and what their relevance is, then all of a sudden you see it in a slightly different way from a slightly different perspective. Um, and instead of being something that could be destroyed uh, to uh, facilitate the construction of a larger, larger and doubtless uh, less charming house, uh, perhaps the utility of it comes to light and people start to understand and appreciate it for what it is. Uh, and that is a process, you know, it's, it's, and it's not going to work for everybody. Um, but I think there are not an um, not insignificant number of people who, who would be interested to know those stories and would, uh, once they are aware of the design genesis or something, would be interested in preserving that and perhaps sympathetically improving it. Oh boy, sympathetically improving it. <laughs> really? Okay, now we're going down a... <laughs> no. Well, I, I don't... I, I, my personal opinion is I don't think architecture can exist in a period of stasis. You know, uh, the way people live does change. Cities change. If we preserve something uh, at a period of time, then uh, that sort of goes against the grain of what human beings do, what human activity is. So inevitably, there has to be a balance. Uh, there are certain things. The VDL house is not a good example, by the way, because I don't believe that should be changed in any way. But <laughs> there are. Uh, there are At all. <laughs> but there are other, say, good quality mid-century buildings that perhaps do not have that kind of provenance, but which one could slightly improve the kitchen or the bathrooms or do something to the landscaping that wasn't part of the original conception of the plans to make them better appointed for the way people want to live now. And I think, you know, that's always a tricky thing to do that sensitively, and some people do it better than others. But should it be allowed in, in some measure on a case-by-case -case basis? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I get this. Totally get it. Now let's get back to the heavy lifting part of it. So identifying the projects. Yes. Finding the projects that you can list, because I assume you want to you list the historically relevant projects as a, as a seller's agent. But you also want to find the ones that are available so you can find the buyers for them. Correct. This is a two-sided process in an industry that is, I'm not going to call it saturated, but it is, it is healthy and robust yes. in Southern California. And starting a new agency is a, it's a big challenge in and of itself. Having this special approach I think is really cool because like you said, you know, it's not about selling hundreds or thousands of prod properties. It's about finding the diamonds in the rough, you know, and finding, and by the way, that just doesn't, that doesn't just go for the properties, it also goes for the people, mm -hmm. right? So what's the, what's the process? How do, you, how do you manage the business side of it and how do you scale? 
Um, so I think, as you said, you know, the key up front is identifying uh, these properties. And actually, um, I've spent uh, almost all my career working in what I would call kind of mass marketing. So big brands, mini, uh, Google, uh, those types of big, big companies where a lot of the time you're appealing to the masses. We're kind of the flip side of that, where we're, tr as exactly as you said, we're trying to find these kind of diamonds in the rough, these people who care enough about design or architecture to, for us to be relevant to them, um, and also to find those houses that have been are not just you know necessarily historic or um, as Jack said it could be around the kind of how the interior design has been done so it's not not necessarily easy to find but um, as Jack mentioned uh, you know we're doing a lot of research we are looking to find you know this kind of very robust database of these properties and looking to connect directly with those people the one advantage we have because we're talking you know less than 10,000 we can have a direct conversation with those people and I think what's really key is you know we want to talk to those people not just about you know, hey, do you want to list your house? We want to talk to those people about what's the story of your house? We're equally interested in people's stories and it doesn't matter to us like that whether they're looking to buy or sell in the next 10 years really. Like we want to talk to all those people, understand the stories of those houses and create that type of content. And then along the way, hopefully a few of those people want to buy or sell a house. So interesting, it's come up a, a couple of times, the content play. Very interesting. So you're, you're publishers too. You're, con right. you're, you're content publishers. This is, a, this is a big part. I've heard it a couple of times, so I know it's, it's, an, it's an important tentpole part of the business. Is, is this you as curators who are now creating the story? Not necessarily creating the stories. Maybe you're just telling the stories. But it also gives you an opportunity to frame the stories as a, as a seller might, might want. Or, or uncover stories that someone may not have heard before or dig a little deeper. That's got to be fun, too. It, it is fun, yeah. I, I think the, the idea of, and, it's, and it's, it's such an overused phrase, but telling the story uh, in this particular space is very intriguing because, uh, so far as we can see, it hasn't been done in a similar way before. And obviously it has advantages for sellers because um, by creating provenance and, and sharing that story with people who might be interested in buying their properties, um, it creates interest. Um, but just because of who we are and our interests as architects and designers, we are also interested in creating content and editorial that is not specifically to do with sales. It's much more to do with architecture and design and what's happening in Los Angeles now. Um, and as Superstructure grows and develops over the next few years, we really want to move into that space in a more decided way and become a digital magazine. Um, that is not any uh, features editorial, not any about architects, uh, architects who've worked historically in Los Angeles, architects who are practicing in the current day, interior designers who are practicing in the current day, other facets of design, uh, furniture design, automotive design, because we believe that the kind of people who are interested in architecture aren't just interested in architecture. They're also, it's a lifestyle for them. They, they truly believe that design improves the quality of their lives and that's not just the space they inhabit or work in but it's also the kind of car they drive or the watch they wear or uh, the uh, teapot that they use uh, and uh, we feel there's, there's definitely a space for, for a digital magazine to do that uh, in a rather comprehensive manner um, 
to go back to your previous point, it is daunting to, to start this company. It is a heavily oversubscribed area. What's different about us is not only just our sort of academic, geeky research approach, uh, but also the fact that we are operating at a sort of broker at a company level. Uh, traditionally in this uh, business, it's the salesperson, the poor salesperson who has to go out and find the listings and scratch around. And of course, a, a lot of those people are tremendously good at that and they build up personal networks. Um, but we think there's a better way of doing it, which is doing it as a company, as a brand, of doing it in a more methodical way uh, of finding those listings through hard graft and research. And of course, it's going to take a while to build up. We're going to start slowly and it will, it will take months, years for this to, to work uh, in an effective manner. Um, but the, the, the difference is, is that um, if people are excited by what we're doing, hopefully they will graduate, gra gravitate to the website and a kind of uh, editorial approach um, and the company will develop a following. And in that sense, there would be a sort of, and, and there'd be a sort of uh, an audience of people who will become aware of what we're doing. And I think, as Charlie said before, we're not aiming to be the next Compass. If we were trying to be Compass, you know, uh, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. It would, that would be a futile exercise. It is a niche brokerage. We are not going to do huge volume. Uh, and, and we're fine with that because we also have other day jobs and this is a, a, an interest that, that we really want to uh, curate um, and only uh, feature stuff that is, uh, has architectural integrity. So as of today, we're having the conversation in September. What is the state of the, of the website? What is the state? Are you guys, are you, are you launch ready? Are you ready to go? Where, where are we? He's pointing at her. He's pointing <laughs> at you. Oh, this is your softball. Look, I just heated up. Uh, no, no. Um, we are um, in the process of uh, creating content. We're talking to um, a number of different people that have really interesting stories, really interesting homes. Um, we have um, a journalist who's working with us, well, a couple of journalists, um, a number of kind of architectural photographers. Um, so the, the, the content is being developed, but yes, it's by no means, we're no means launch ready. I wish I, wish I could blink my eyes and that would be the case. And so right now it's an academic exercise. When does it become real? It, it becomes real uh, in October when we launch uh, and we uh, have a, a a respected and experienced salesperson joining us who uh, has a wealth of knowledge, particularly about mid-century architecture. Um, as Charlie said, we're also commissioning several editorial pieces. So when the website goes live in October, uh, that's, when it, that's when there's something that people can go and look at and get excited about and start asking questions. But at the moment, you're quite right, it is an academic exercise and it has been for several months. We've been working on this for quite a long time. And by the way, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. I don't take it in a derogatory yeah. way. <laughs> it's I think an unusual approach. And uh, my father was an academic, he was a university professor, he's a social anthropologist. And uh, growing up with an academic, uh, one sort of, uh, you know, you, 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 you start to sort of absorb some of that uh, uh, approach to, uh, to solving problems. Uh, and uh, our approach to doing an original piece of research that's going to be 
actually much larger as a database than we thought it would be. Uh, Noah Walker and I had a discussion a few months ago about how many unique entries we might have in this database. And we thought, well, maybe we're lucky to have three or 4,000. Um, we're now well over six, hitting seven. And by the time we finished, we might be eight or nine. Um, and that surprised us. Uh, and it, but it has been a joy to discover these places, to have weekly meetings, to hear the unusual stories that uh, Julia and Eleanor have turned up. Uh, and uh, I think that research will really be a, a, a very solid bedrock for the company, um, an excellent resource that I'm sure we will return to again and again, and indeed add to as we continue uh, and as the company acquires more listings. What's the lunch date? Tentatively, of course. I always say tentatively, of course, yes. because... No, I like the tentatively. You know, 1st of October, yeah. tentatively. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is really exciting. Are you it excited? Is, yeah. We're very, very more exciting. excited or nervous? A bit of both, okay. I think. All right. yeah. I mean, the funny thing is we've been working on this for so long that, uh, in a way, you, you, you live with it. Uh, and then when, the, when it, you get to a point where it's actually going to happen and when people start becoming aware of it, that's quite weird as well. Yeah. Because you, you've thought about it for so long. Yeah. And then when... Sort start, of in a bubble. It, yeah, when start people... people I mean, this is only a sort of a very organic level at the moment. People start asking you questions about what is it and why. why. Yeah. Uh, and you're kind of, and you, you sort of... Uh, that, that is exciting because then it starts to see the light of day. But also, also of course, you're, you know, it's, 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 it's quite... Uh, nerve-wracking because it's a, there's a lot to do in the next few weeks. Yeah, and, and in addition to all the launch and, and all of the other things that you have to do, you've got to fight on your hands. Yes. When, yeah. when, when you become successful enough to get the attention of those around you in the space, then they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, why aren't we doing that? And those are things that you have to plan for as well. Yeah. But at the beginning, you don't have to think about that. So, <laughs> so listen, that's listen. a luxury problem, I think. It's a luxury yeah. problem. Okay. <laughs> but, I, but I also believe that, that uh, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, of course, if we are successful, people will want to ape what we're doing. But that's a form of flattery. Uh, and um, one of our differences is that Noah and myself both have design backgrounds. Um, people who our traditional brokers don't, you know, uh, so they, unless they're going to go and get architectural degrees uh, or uh, complete interior design courses, and I hope they do, by the way, um, <laughs> it would be quite hard to copy us, I think. Uh, yeah. We do have a sort of interesting and, and fairly left field approach to all of this. And I think a lot of people, when they first see what we're doing, sort of scratch their heads and think, well, that's all a bit weird. Uh, and it, the answer is it is a bit weird, but I think it's something that, that will really appeal to creative people and people who are interested in design and in unique spaces. Absolutely. Very cool. I can't wait to see it. Good luck with the launch. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming and telling your story. Thank you for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank very you. Much Thanks, Joseph. Us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Convo by Design. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, thank you, Jack. Much appreciated uh, for the time. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the show and follow us on the socials so you don't miss any of the latest developments in SoCal architecture and design. You can also ask your smart device to play it for you. Just say, hey, Siri, play Convo by Design. And she will. It's amazing. Thank you again for listening. Until next week, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vondam Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. 
They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Vendôme products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vondam.com. Mm-hmm.